Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh Lord God, you are great and awesome. And we ask today that you would give us discernment. Help us to further confirm our position with you. To know that we have eternal life. Now, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, be with me as I try to imperfectly impart your word and that you would be with these listeners and they would hear, not only in their minds, but within their hearts, your truth. We give all praise and glory to you now. Amen. Okay. Now, take a look at this picture. All right. Anybody see anything there that's a little strange? Okay, well, what you should gather from this is that there's some people who just don't care, right, about consequences, okay? And the lesson from that is that there's some people that just don't care about sin, now, my question to you and to me is, do we really care about sin? Seriously. I know, like in Sunday school, where you, the answer is usually God or Jesus. Of course, if I were to ask you that individually, you say, well, of course I do. But really, in our age, where sin and evil is so rampant, so common... Do we not become a little desensitized to it? You know, uh, in the practice of law, like, you know, Mike Patton and I, we come across a fair amount of sin, and, and it tends to kind of, uh, you know, change our attitude a little bit. We, it, we kind of expect it to happen, but not nearly so much as those in law enforcement, like Bill Davenport, and uh, Eric Rucker was a county attorney at one time. And they're exposed to sin a lot. And some of you know that my son-in-law is a district attorney here. And I've had a number of conversations with him about the rampant evil that he is not only exposed to, but that he has to become intimately aware of. He's got to deal with all the details. And I'm sure Eric and, and, uh, and Bill have had to do the same thing. Uh, and he has a great passion, as I'm sure these men do, for certain things like children and human trafficking and all the evils that are out there. And as they must be objective, kind of like Joe Friday, Detective Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, just a few of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> they still have to be careful about the other problem of becoming completely callous. Thinking, well, everybody out there is doing sin and evil, so why should I care? And I know that Bill and Eric and, and Mike do care, but that's a huge balance to maintain. And, but, but think about this, how subtle this is. To the extent that that's true for you and me, that we become desensitized to sin just because of its commonality here, are we not contributing to the worldly view that really there is no such thing as sin 
in our daily lives. Oh sure, there's criminal activity because somebody has said or legislated that it's wrong, but that other stuff, that's just what happens. Okay? Now this is not a new question. The span of recollection within this little body here goes back to not much more than the 50s, maybe the 40s, based upon the oldest among us. I was born in the early 50s, and so I'm, I vaguely recall what the culture was like back then. And, you know, obviously sin has been with us always, but it seemed in that time, when I was very young, that sin was something of which we should be ashamed. In fact, the culture went out of its way to avoid even a hint of sin. Maybe even a little too far sometimes. So if you were watching TV, black and white of course, and you came upon a bedroom scene, it would look something like this. Some of you remember shaking your heads. Okay? Uh, there was a time when if a loudmouth would use foul language in front of a lady, a gentleman would step forward and confront him. Compare that to today. Uh, dresses were below the knee and hair was always well-groomed back in those days. Then came the mid-60s and the 70s. And along with those times came upheaval like drugs and the sexual revolution and abortion and a host of other social problems that blurred the lines between right and wrong. Now, understand, I'm not judging anybody by appearance here. I'm just trying to show the drastic change in the culture reflected in appearance in less than one generation, in less than 20 or maybe even 15 years. And by the way, some in this room probably looked a bit like this at one time. Right, Mark? <laughs> okay. However, there was a whole lot of stuff going on at that time. And there was so much change that in 1973, a Dr. Carl Menninger of Topeka, Kansas, shocked his profession by entitling his book, Whatever Became of Sin. And Dr. Menninger wrote this, the word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Does anyone believe in sin? And Menninger pointed out that the word sin had been replaced by euphemisms like transgression and mistake and infraction, error. But Minniger didn't just challenge the culture. He actually called out the church for its collective amnesia or its, if not its intentional omission 
of the word sin from its preaching. Now, today, uh, things certainly haven't gotten any better, but we have come up with terms like politically incorrect in order to pigeonhole certain words like sin so that those concepts can be marginalized, put out there among the wackos. So our culture has evolved from the point of being ashamed of sin to the point of being shamed for using the word sin. While ignoring sin may assuage the guilt of some, there's a slight problem because it requires one to call God a liar and question his character. Major tenets of our faith must be cast aside. One liberal theologian put it in this way. I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I think Jesus came to show us something about life. I don't think we need people hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff like that. And if there's no such thing as sin, she's absolutely right. We really don't need a savior. But thankfully, John brings clarity to our understanding of this whole matter of sin and the savior. And 1 John 1:5 is the foundation of the first half of the book that God is light, and then the second half of the book is about God is love. So as we work through this passage today, uh, please keep in mind that in order to understand and think correctly about the Savior and about your relationship with Him, we must think and, and understand correctly about the whole concept of sin. So, let's get started here. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. We have good news to proclaim. And this message referred to in verse 5, is nothing more or less than the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And we saw last month in the first four verses that he was from the beginning, the word of life, the eternal life, with the Father, the source source of fellowship and joy. So John tells us that as Christ followers, we have been given a message of good news that is to be proclaimed through all the world. And you know that missionaries have been active for many years, and much of the world has heard this message. But I saw some research that said that more than one-third of the world's distinct people groups have not yet heard the gospel. So there's still work to be done. John says that the core of this message is that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, the concept of light and darkness is a very effective rhetorical device, okay? And I want you to think big here. Back up and think about your existence. We take it for granted, but is there anything more pervasive and ever-present in our physical lives than the presence or absence of light? Think about that. Light pierces the darkness every sunrise, doesn't it? You and I wouldn't be seeing each other without light right now. 
And if you know you're going to go into the woods where it's completely dark, you want to pack a flashlight, right? I mean, it is ever-present. And it also is used in Scripture and other places as a metaphor. Of course, virtue is associated with light, and immorality is the embodiment of darkness. So the biblical use of this contrast also incorporates both the intellectual and the moral dimensions. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul warns believers to stop walking as the unbelieving Gentiles who, quote, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, what Paul says here about unregenerate Gentiles is true of all fallen humanity. Our understanding is indeed darkened and our walk follows suit. The darkness that is part of all fallen humanity alienates all of us from the life of God. So in describing God as light in verse 5, John highlights his absolute moral purity and his omniscience, his all-knowing nature. He has no moral defects and he lacks no knowledge. He knows everything. The person and work of Christ is the light that brings us into fellowship with God, who is the light. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that the gospel is veiled to the perishing, and that Satan has blinded their minds, quote, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And Paul tells us that our job is simply to proclaim the gospel. And then he concludes, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the light that reveals God to mankind and brings us into fellowship with him. John's description of God as light, in whom there is no darkness, tells us that he is inaccessible to those who choose to exist in darkness. They can't get to him. The necessary link for fellowship between creatures who live in darkness and a creator of absolute light is the Son of God. And without Christ, people will remain in the state of darkness, separate from the life of God. So, one of the things... The next thing that John wants us to understand is that sin makes the gospel very good news. Now, understanding the core of sin is vital to the gospel. It is basically a form of idolatry, self-idolatry, that is. It is putting myself in God's place, making myself my own God, deciding what is right and wrong for myself, basically defining sin for myself. And John suggests rather strongly that human opinion really is a very poor, if not totally unbiblical standard. He uses three if-we-say statements to help us focus on God's view of sin and to avoid lying. Okay? The first thing he said to us is don't lie to others. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, John uses the pronoun we to, in, to imply that anyone, anywhere, anytime, including he, John, are subject to this. And the word walk there simply means our consistent pattern of life, what we're characterized by. And verse 6, as you can tell, deals with the negative. And you might paraphrase it like, if one says to others that he knows God, yet his consistent life pattern contradicts that assertion, clearly he is lying to others. Verse 7, on the other hand, is the positive. It says, if we believe, if we live our lives as true Christ followers, that is, in the light, this common ground gives us an intimate fellowship with other Christ followers, and the sacrifice of Christ keeps cleansing us. Now, these two verses are meant to be more than an abstract theological statement. Uh, for John to walk in the light as he is in the light is to receive and embrace the gospel message so that, as he said in verse 3, you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son Jesus. So the genuine Christ follower, Christ follower is characterized by a walk or manner of living that reflects and responds to the truth that is revealed in Christ in his word. And this authentic life in the light is what draws us together in intimate fellowship, which we hope many of you will have this afternoon when you meet in, in potlucks. In Ephesians 5, Paul exhorts us to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So we can see that God indeed is light, and in Him there is no darkness. But because of our fallen condition, we are in darkness and are therefore alienated from the life of God. But in Christ, we're reconciled to God and, and we're in fellowship with the light. So John and Paul both exhort us to reflect that light in fellowship with Christ and with one another. Next thing John encourages us to do is not to lie to ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, there's a saying that if you repeat a lie often enough, eventually it becomes the truth. Now, of course, nothing can change objective truth. Two and two will always be four, and murder will always be wrong. But psychologists have actually found that repetition of a lie can create what they call the illusion of truth. 
That is, if you hear something repeated often, you are more likely to believe it, whether it's true or not. So therefore, it is really, really important what you and your children listen to. We should not be surprised that the Bible highlights this effect on those who live in darkness and lie to others. They will eventually believe the lie themselves as it's repeated back to them by other like-minded people of darkness. The prophet Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Now, I bet all of you, if you think about what you've heard and seen in the news, can think of exactly that thing happening. Paul likewise warns that the wrath of God is against those who lie to or deceive themselves. In Romans 1, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So John's second, if we say, statement addresses this problem. He confronts the fool who says, I don't sin, so I don't need someone to save me or pay for something that isn't even wrong. John makes quick work of this assertion. This person, he says, is self-deceived. The truth is not in him. In other words, he's lying to himself. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said it very, very well. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. As the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. A fair question. A fair question here is, who exactly is John addressing? Because, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to imagine anybody say, saying, I've never done anything wrong. Okay? That's, that's a hard one. Now, you may think of people who are so depraved and so evil that it appears that they, they believe that, uh, or that it doesn't make any difference. And this may be who Paul is referring to in 1 Timothy 4, where he warns of insincere liars whose consciences are seared. In terms of worldview, a postmodernist who philosophically believes there is no such thing as right or wrong, truth, or anything like that, may be in this category. Again, I personally don't believe that anybody actually lives life believing there's no right and wrong. Uh, all you've got to do is take away their cell phone or their, steal their car, and they'll, they'll become a moralist all of a sudden. Another possible application here is the average Joe, person who, in the back of his conscience, 
yeah, he thinks there's right and wrong, but yet he compromises so much that he eventually succumbs to temptation and gets to the point where he doesn't even consider it to be wrong anymore. So whatever the application, John makes clear that a person who says that he does not sin and does not need a savior is contradicting God himself. He's making himself a substitute for God, making himself God. In essence, he has no moral compass to guide in seeing a specific or any sin at all. John follows this hard truth up with one of the most reassuring verses in the Bible. And please, I know you've heard this many times, but let it sink in. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's as if John said, face it, we're all sinners. What matters is our response to that inevitable sin. Those who hide or pretend it doesn't exist are lying to others and perhaps even to themselves. And they will repeat the sin and bear the consequences. However, the good news is those who recognize and openly confess and repent of their sins actually change will find mercy, grace, and forgiveness. You know, if you've read the, the Proverbs, you know that Solomon had many moral failings, but he got one thing right in Proverbs 28. He said, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So, you know, I, I'm sure for most of the people in here, this should be and is a no-brainer. Yet, what does Jesus tell us? He says that many will choose the road more traveled that he calls the broad way. Few will go through the straight gate and walk down the narrow road. Next, John tells us not to lie about God. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So John's last if we say statement brings the final warning and condemnation to those who claim to be sinless. These folks say they have they got no problem with God or with the truth. In fact, they have no problem with sin in their lives. The problem with that thought is that God says they do. We all do. Therefore, they're calling God a liar. And so, God's word is not in them. And this starry state is described by the Russian author and philosopher Dostoevsky. And he said in the brothers Kamazarov, the man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a point that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love. And in order to amuse and distract himself without love, he gives way to passions and vulgar pleasures and becomes a complete animal in his vices, all from continually lying to other men and 
to himself. In biblical terms, God gives them up to the lusts in their hearts to impurity. And finally, John tells us oops, to tell the truth about Jesus. Uh, you all know that you're not supposed to add to the Word of God, okay? But the grammar here is a little bit difficult. So please allow me to add a couple of words here so it makes a little more sense. My little children, I am with the Father, says Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In John's letter, this may surprise you, but there are no chapter and verse numbers. Okay? He's writing a letter. And after this ominous warning about liars, the very next statement is one of hope and promise. This is a little bit like the turnabout in Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Mr. Beaver is describing Aslan to Susan... And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So the first thing we need to remember is that Jesus is, excuse me, he's our advocate. And it's a good thing that God is good because he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he brought the universe into being, he gives and he takes away. Because we're sinners, the only thing that saves us from God's justice and wrath is the reality that the Father is so good that He put His Son on the cross to pay for our sins. And Jesus is so good that He is our advocate with the Father. He's speaking for us. John wrote uh, the counsel in chapter 1, so that you may not sin. John knows quite clearly that we cannot live life sinless. However, because we are in fellowship with the Father and the Son, we can sin less. And when we sin, John instructs us to confess our sins in chapter 1. And here in chapter 2, he reassures us that we have an advocate with the Father. Our advocate is sinless, undefiled, and perfect in his nature and his actions. As an advocate, he helps us when we sin by cleansing us, that's verse 7, by forgiving us, verse 9. Now, all other uses of the word advocate in the, in, the, in the New Testament describe the Holy Spirit, which is the advocate in our heart. But this particular verse says we have an advocate in heaven itself, Jesus Christ. Paul uses a different word in Romans 8 in describing the Spirit and Jesus, the word intercessor. He says the Spirit himself intercesses for us with groanings too deep for words. And then Paul describes Jesus as the one who is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. As a result, no person, no sin, nothing will separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And verse 2 indicates that he is the propitiation for our sin. We mentioned last month that propitiation means Jesus became our substitute. He assumed our obligations, our debt. The perfect righteousness and justice of God requires payment for sin. But Jesus covered over our guilt and satisfied that debt by the punishments which he endured on the cross. The wrath, judgment, and hell that is deserved by all of us sinners was experienced by Jesus on the cross in our place. That's the balance of perfect justice and perfect love. Now, Paul explains in uh, this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling the word, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You know, you hear a lot of stuff out there if you get on the internet, and it's indeed baffling when religious people see the biblical reference to the blood of Christ as too gory. Or that God, the God of the Bible, is cruel. Episcopal Bishop John Spong says he does not want, quote, a God who would kill his own son, unquote. Another guy named Steve Kalk, who's a leader in the open church movement, calls God, quote, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. A twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Now I admit, it does take a lot of faith to believe that he loves us that much. Earlier we said that sin is always a form of idolatry, putting myself in God's place, making my own decisions about what's right and wrong, and defining sin for myself. These religious people are simply guilty of idolatry, deciding for themselves what God's nature ought to be in their minds and what the Bible should and should not say. In short, they don't want a biblical Jesus. They want a Jesus of their own making. They want a God of love, 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 period. No more. And what they do not understand is that without God's righteousness and justice, love is simply an emotion adrift without any reference point. It's just meaningless. The cross forms the intersection of God's justice, righteousness, and judgment where it meets God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness. You've got to have both balancing truths or you have nothing. Finally, God's love is offered to all through Christ's sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. You and I, are his ambassadors to the world. God is light. But Jesus tells us that we are the light of the world. So just as the moon reflects the light of the sun to pierce the darkness of the night, so you and I are to reflect the love of the sun to a dark world. Paul calls this the ministry of reconciliation that God entrusted to us. In short, this is the Great Commission. So I'm going to call the worship team up right now, and uh, as they prepare, uh, we are, as we approach the time of worship and then the Lord's table a little later, 
we want to focus on worshiping Jesus, the Lamb of God. There's going to be another overhead here in just a second. And in the book of Revelation, John describes his vision and gives us a glimpse. We can't fully comprehend this, but he gives us a glimpse of what it's like to worship. Now, if you're not familiar with the, uh, with the book of Revelation, or if you simply don't understand it, which is probably all of us in here, uh, this may seem a little weird, but uh, please understand, this is what worship will be like, at least as best we can tell. So, uh, Chad, can you bring that back up? Just a moment here. I'm going to read a little bit while he brings it up. And, uh, uh, and when I get to the words, they sang a new song saying, then you read what's on the screen with me, okay? So, in Revelation 5, it says, And between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls Full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Amen. <laughs> 